It's Sunday, the 2nd of February, 1964. It's a freezing cold, but peaceful morning in London, and the only sounds that threaten the serene calm near Hammersmith Bridge are the distant chimes of church bells and the gentle lapping of water on the bank of the River Thames. A man walking his dog on the footpath takes a moment to appreciate the beauty of the scene as the overnight fog begins to lift. But within a minute, he spots something that he absolutely does not appreciate. A pale human figure has washed up on the riverbank and is lying there, deftly still, as the water quietly splashes around it. The man initially thinks that it's a mannequin and he's annoyed at the continued pollution of this stretch of river in suburban West London, a mile or two downstream from the factories of Chiswick and Brentford. It's only on closer inspection that his irritation turns to revulsion as he realises the figure on the riverbank is not a mannequin at all. It's the body of a woman. Hello again and welcome to episode 3 of the Ministry of History podcast, a podcast that aims to take a look at some of history's lesser known people and stories. Today's topic lines up perfectly with that. We're going to be discussing a series of murders in West London that, for some bizarre reason, doesn't seem to be too well known. After the last two episodes, which were set in the dark and dreary 19th century, today we're leaping forward to the swinging 60s, a time when Britain was confidently striding into the modern age amid a cultural revolution built on music, fashion and film. But nearly 80 years on from the Jack the Ripper murders, which terrorised London's East End, an eerily similar murderer was lurking in the city's western suburbs, killing at least six, but probably eight women. This murderer was subject of the second largest ever manhunt in British policing history, and the fact that he was never caught makes this Britain's largest ever unsolved murder case. So why was he never caught? Who are the suspects? And more importantly, who are the victims? What were their stories? What were their backgrounds? We've got a lot to get through today, so I don't want to spend too much time on housekeeping. I'll just give you the usual pointers to follow me on Twitter, at Ministry History, all one word with no of in the middle, for the latest updates about new blogs, new podcasts and anything else. I also encourage you to look at the blog. It's on Google, the Ministry of History. It should be one of the top results and you'll know it's the right one because it's got a blue and black logo. Now then, on with the story. Before we start properly, I just want to give a brief disclaimer. Details about some of the victims' ages and backgrounds can vary depending on what source you look at. I have tried to be as accurate and as respectful as possible when giving details about the victims. When I first heard about this story and when I first started researching it, 
I could not believe that it's not better known. Here's a murderer with a higher body count than Jack the Ripper. And you'll see why I keep mentioning Jack the Ripper in a minute. The murderer was subject to the second largest manhunt in British policing history and the case is the largest unsolved murder case in Britain. Perhaps the case was overshadowed by the crimes of the man who was subject to the only ever larger manhunt in British history, the infamous Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe, who terrorised the north of England just over a decade later. Even so, I'm still stunned that this series of murders is not more widely known. I'm all the more stunned because I'm from West London myself. I'm local to where these murders occurred. I grew up within five miles of all of the murder scenes. I'm familiar with literally every location we're about to discuss. And yet, even with my keen interest in history, I was never aware of these murders until very recently. Same with my friends, same even with my parents. Granted, these murders took place 30 years before I was born. They took place a couple of years before my mother was born and when my father was a toddler. But still, we're hardly discussing ancient history here. We're talking about the 1960s. It strikes me as really odd that I and my friends could have grown up in this part of London and not known anything about these murders. It strikes me as odd that my parents could have grown up in London so soon after the murders occurred and still not known anything about them. The shadows of other serial killers have loomed over their communities for decades, even centuries. But why is there so little awareness of these murders, even in the areas where they occurred? It's this lack of coverage and lack of awareness that I intend to put right in this podcast. Let's start by setting the scene and talking about the victims. The victims were all local to West London, although none of them had been brought up here. They had come to London from other parts of Britain and Ireland and fallen into prostitution as a means of supporting themselves. Most of them were known to work the Shepherd's Bush area, which was known as a red light district at the time. Their bodies were found in Kensington, Hammersmith, Chiswick, Brentford and Ealing, all within four or five miles of Shepherd's Bush. Incidentally, if you head over to the blog, you can see a map of where the bodies were found and where this is in relation to the rest of London. In 2021, the areas I just listed are mostly residential, stretches of anonymous suburbia with its wealthy parts and not so wealthy parts that typify most of West London. But in the 1960s, these were industrial areas, predominantly working class. There were factories dotted along the river at Chiswick and Brentford. There were huge industrial estates in Ealing and Acton, about three miles north of the river. It's in this environment, not far from the swinging city in distance, but far removed from it in prosperity, that the victims were forced to work and a killer lurked. You may have noticed at the start of this podcast that I said this killer murdered at least six women, but probably eight. What I meant by that was that there's only six official recognised victims of his. And by the way, 
I think we can safely assume that it's a man. More on that at the end of the next episode. So there's only six official recognised victims, but most people think that the same killer killed two more women in the years previous to the spree where he killed the other six. So, while the first official recognised victim was the unfortunate woman who was hauled from the River Thames that freezing February morning in 1964, I'm actually going to start five years previous to this. I'm going to rewind to 1959 and introduce you to a woman named Elizabeth Figg. Elizabeth Figg is 21 years old in 1959. She's born and raised in Cheshire in the northwest of England, but comes down to London to try and make her own way in life. From what I can work out, she seems to have found work in a shoe factory in Chiswick. As you might imagine, working in a shoe factory doesn't pay too well, and she's forced to supplement her meagre income by working occasionally as a prostitute. Now, on my blog, you can see photographs of most of the victims. But the only photograph I can find of Elizabeth Figg seems to be from her autopsy. So I thought I wouldn't publish it, but if you really want to, you can probably find it on the internet. What I can tell you now is that she's short, petite, young looking. As we're going to find out, this is exactly the type of woman that the killer preys on. On the night of Tuesday, the 16th of June, 1959, Elizabeth Figg is seen by a few witnesses getting into a car with a man. She was never seen alive again. Her body was discovered at dawn the following morning on a path at Duke's Meadows Park, which is a park in Chiswick just by the river. She was nude from the waist down, her dress had been ripped to expose her breasts and her neck showed signs of strangulation. Now, of course, it didn't take a genius to work out that the man in the car was probably the murderer and the police searched for him. But the witnesses who had seen her get into the car couldn't identify the man nor the make of the car. So the case soon went cold. The next probable victim of this killer is a Welsh woman named Gwyneth Rees. Now Rees seems to come from a loving family but equally seems to have been a bit of a troubled teenager. When she's only 16 in the late 1950s, she moves from Wales to Essex to live with her elder sister. She has a child when she's in Essex and arranges for this child to be looked after by her sister. By 1963, the 22-year-old, slim and petite Rees is working as a prostitute in London. She's also had another child by this point and arranged for this one to be put up for adoption. It's not clear who the fathers are in each case. Her body is discovered on the morning of the 8th of November, 1963, in a rubbish dump in Mortlake, just across the river from Duke's Meadows Park. She's naked apart from one sock and she's been strangled to death. So we have two victims, both prostitutes, both similar in appearance, both strangled to death and both their bodies dumped in the nude. As we're going to see as the podcast progresses, the victim profiles of these two women are consistent with the other six women. The way they are killed 
is consistent with the others, and the way their bodies are dumped in the nude is consistent with the others. So, why are these two women, Elizabeth Figg and Gwyneth Rees, not officially recognised as victims of the same killer as the other six women? Unfortunately, I can't quite find a definitive answer for this. Perhaps it's because the other six are killed in such a short period of time over 1964 to 1965. Or perhaps it's because some of the other victims are mutilated, whereas Fig and Rees were not. However, even accounting for all of this, if I was a betting man, which I may or may not be, I would bet that Elizabeth Fig and Gwyneth Rees are victims of the same killer as the other six women. The killer we're discussing today is a murderer of eight women rather than six. At this point, we go back to where this podcast began, to the unfortunate woman who was hauled out of the River Thames just by Hammersmith Bridge that February morning in 1964. The woman's name was Hannah Tailford, a 30-year-old mother of two who was actually pregnant with her third child when she was murdered. Similar to Elizabeth Figg and Gwyneth Rees, Tailford was short and slim and was working as a prostitute at the time of her death. However, despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary, police did not see her as the victim of a crime. She'd been missing for over a week when she was found, she was naked when she was found, and she had her underwear stuffed in her mouth, but police just shrugged and called it a suicide. It's not that they didn't bother to look into the case. Based on a post-mortem and a study of tide flows, they managed to work out that she had entered the water 24 hours previously at none other than Duke's Meadows Park. It's just that, in keeping with the unfortunate attitudes of the time, it seems that they didn't really see the point in investigating the death of a prostitute. However, the police's hand would be forced very soon indeed. Two months later, on the morning of the 8th of April 1964, the body of Irene Lockwood, a 26-year-old woman from Nottinghamshire, was found floating face down in the River Thames in Chiswick. Again, she was slim and petite, standing at only five foot tall. Again, her body was discovered naked and she had been strangled to death. Again, she was pregnant at the time of her death. Police noted with grim foreboding the location of her death, just a mile away from where Hannah Tailford's body had been discovered. It's at this point that they realised, if they didn't realise already, that Hannah Tailford had not committed suicide and that a serial killer was on the loose. They linked the death of Irene Lockwood with that of Hannah Tailford and with the death of Gwyneth Rees, but for some reason they later went on to leave Gwyneth Rees off the list of official victims. Regardless, after the discovery of the body of Irene Lockwood, the press were firmly on the case and the sensational headlines practically wrote themselves. They soon made the link between this series of murders and the Jack the Ripper murders of 1888. Just like the Ripper, this mysterious murderer targeted prostitutes and had a portion of the city 
gripped in fear. It wasn't long before the press had a new nickname for this mysterious West London killer. Jack the Stripper. Within three weeks, the elusive Jack had claimed another victim. She was Helen Barthelemy, a 22-year-old Scottish woman who had come down to London with big dreams, eager to seek her fortune. Unfortunately, her dreams hadn't quite materialised before she was forced to turn to prostitution and they were halted completely when she was murdered. Perhaps because of the increased police patrols along the river, her body wasn't discovered there. Instead, she was found half a mile north, dumped in an alleyway in Brentford on the morning of the 24th of April, 1964. Again, she was naked like the other victims and had been strangled to death, but police made two significant finds on Barthelemy's body. The first was her missing front teeth. This was to become a signature on the remaining stripper victims. But more importantly, police found tiny flecks of industrial paint scattered across her skin. This was the first big break in the case and detectives theorised that the killer was an industrial worker who was exposed to such specks of paint at work. Perhaps he even kept the bodies at his place of work before getting rid of them. These weren't unreasonable theories, but theories alone couldn't stop this remorseless killer. The next woman who was unfortunate enough to come into contact with the mysterious Jack the Stripper was 30-year-old Mary Fleming. Fleming had been born in Scotland but brought up in Newcastle and had come down to London in the late 1950s or early 1960s. She was mother to four children and had turned to prostitution when her marriage fell apart. Her body was found on a residential street in Chiswick on the morning of the 14th of July, 1964. Police knew she was a stripper victim because she was unclothed, she had been strangled, some of her front teeth were missing and the telltale specks of paint were present on her skin. Several residents said they had been woken from their sleep in the early hours by the sound of a car reversing and then speeding off into the night. But bear in mind, this is the 1960s. There's no DNA or forensic evidence as we know it. And without a murder weapon, without a description of the car, without a description of the man, there is no way the police could get anywhere near identifying their killer. After Mary Fleming's body was discovered, there was an apparent lull in the Jack the Stripper killings. For the rest of the summer, he didn't seem to target anyone else. But if police were getting complacent, then they shouldn't have been. Because in the autumn, Jack the Stripper would be back with a vengeance, resuming his activities in the heart of the swinging city. On the next episode, Jack the Stripper claims two more victims and the police are at a loss. Scotland Yard drafts in one of its top detectives who spearheads an intensive but ultimately fruitless investigation. 
So who were the suspects? Who were the men who could have been the mysterious West London killer? There's no definitive proof, but as we're going to find out, the circumstantial evidence overwhelmingly points to one man. The Ministry of History is not an academic source. I'm influenced by all types of writings and documentaries. For this podcast, I want to particularly acknowledge the influence of the following articles. Jack the Stripper and the Hammersmith Murders by Richard Bevan for the Crime and Investigation website. The Serial Killer Who Visited Chiswick by Jane Lawrenson for the Chiswick Herald. How a Welsh murderer may have become one of London's most notorious serial killers by Nathan Bevan for Wales Online. TV show in bid to solve the 1964 murder of Barrow Woman. Article by Eleanor Ovens for the Newcastle Mail. I also want to acknowledge the influence of the documentary by Professor David Wilson, Dark Sun, The Hunt for a Serial Killer. Produced by the BBC.